We turn our attention now to questions of education and educational policy uh, with presentations on primary and secondary education, uh, the universities, and multiculturalism and affirmative uh, action. And we have simply the best panel you could possibly get uh, on these uh, themes because we have the, have the best uh, people. Uh, Joe Vitteritti uh, is a professor who holds an endowed chair at uh, Hunter uh, College of uh, CUNY. Uh, I'm delighted to say that he is a former uh, visiting fellow in the James Madison program and a former visiting professor here at Princeton uh, University. He's the author of Choosing Equality, School Choice, and uh, the Constitution and Civil Society, which was uh, published by Brookings. He has been a force, an intellectual force, uh, in the uh, school reform and school uh, choice uh, movements. He earned his uh, PhD from the City University of New York. Uh, Joe will be speaking on uh, uh, secondary and uh, primary and secondary education. Uh, Professor Harvey Mansfield, uh, one of our nation's most eminent political theorists, uh, is the William R. Keenan Professor of Government at Harvard uh, University. He's the author of uh, many important uh, books, uh, including Statesmanship and Party Government, A Study of Burke and Bolingbroke, uh, The Spirit of Liberalism, Machiavelli's New, Mo uh, New Modes and Orders, A Study of the Discourses on Livy, uh, Selected Letters of Edmund Burke, and uh, so forth and so on. Professor uh, Mansfield has held a Guggenheim Fellowship uh, and an NEH uh, Fellowship. He uh, is a holder of the uh, National uh, Humanities Medal, which he received from the President of the United States. Uh, he has won numerous awards, including the Sidney Hook Award of the National Association of Scholars and the Philip Merrill Award of the American Council of Trustees uh, and Alumni. And it's really a great honor to have uh, Professor Mansfield back with us. Uh, the same is true of Professor Bill Allen, who is currently, I'm delighted to say, the Ann and Herbert W. Vaughn Visiting Fellow in the James Madison Program of American Ideals and Institutions here. Uh, his uh, full-time job, or his regular job, is at Michigan State University, where he is a professor of political science uh, and has been a dean. Uh, professor Allen has served as a member of the uh, National Council uh, on the Humanities uh, and as chairman of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, his most recent book is Habits of Mind, Fostering Access and Excellence in Higher Education. He received his PhD from the Claremont Graduate School, and I can't help but uh, uh, also mention that uh, uh, Bill has contributed not only his own uh, talents and work uh, to us here at Princeton, but two of his children, uh, both of whom were superstar uh, students and are now superstar professionals. One, Danielle, is an academic at the University of uh, Chicago, and so Bill, we thank you uh, not only for your personal contributions, but for those of your kids. So we're going to uh, begin with uh, Joe Vitteritti. Joe. Um, first, I'd like to thank Robbie uh, for putting together such an, an important conversation, and, it, and it's a particular uh, pleasure and an honor to, to do it in the company of Matt Glazer, who I don't see as much as I would like, but got a chance to chat with today. Um, if, you, if you examine the journal uh, editions from 1966 to uh, 2004, uh, you find that um, there's quite a bit of stuff on education in there. And uh, one way to appreciate the contribution of the journal uh, over that 40-year period uh, is to understand some of the conventional thinking that was in place when the journal started. I was going to say conventional wisdom, but that would be far too generous for any discussion of education policy in America over the last 40 years. Um, 
one way of assessing the success of it, obviously, is to, is to see how far we've come in that discussion uh, and also how far we need to go. Um, I don't want to pretend there was unanimity in the profession, and in the profession I, I not only mean academicians, but people who do education for a living uh, in elementary and secondary schools. Um, but there were certainly some prevailing ways of thinking that kind of set the premises of the discussion about education policy. And I would focus here on four in particular. The first premise, going back to 1966, was that uh, the integration of the races in schools was a uh, constructive way to promote educational equity. Um, now, when I, when I speak about this, I need to make a distinction between desegregation, which was part of the original court order in, um, in Brown, which forbade setting race as a condition for admission to particular public schools, to a, a strategy of integration, uh, which resulted in policies that moved students around very often by force uh, at the behest of a very aggressive federal judiciary, which um, Ken talked about yesterday. Implicit in that, of course, was some understanding that if we put African-American and Hispanic kids next to white kids, that they would learn more. And, you know, there were some other collateral benefits that I think um, we could discuss um, about having people learn together of different races and becoming familiar with people who are not like yourselves, which I think are very um, beneficial. The question was, how far could government go to bring that about? How far could the courts push legitimately to bring that about? And of course, the most controversial aspect of that form of policy that was enacted uh, was school busing, which became very controversial and contributed to a lot of animosity between the races. So we'll start with that as a first premise. Um, the second premise was that the more money you spent on education, the better. Now, this premise was uh, acted upon uh, in the context of two basic forms of policy over the years. Uh, the first manifestation was in the Educational and Secondary Education Act, particularly Title I that was enacted during the Johnson administration, which invested more federal dollars in education than had ever happened before. The second manifestation came about 10 years later in the form of school finance uh, litigation, which again attempted to redistribute uh, funds, uh, mostly from, from suburban school districts to urban school districts. Now, there's not anything uh, particularly unreasonable about the proposition that more money is better. Anybody who carries a wallet in their pocket will tell you, yeah, having more is better than having less. The question here was, again, uh, when the government was spending more, it was actually taking it out of the wallet 
of somebody else, and it was reasonable to ask what social benefit was going to be derived from that. Um, and there was a real question as to whether or not the machinery, the institutional machinery in elementary and secondary education was up to it in terms of converting those resources into positive social ends. But the, there was a general assumption, just like the assumption around school integration, that it would be better, that kids would learn. And in fairness to those who wrote the, the original legislation, there were aspects of the law which called for accountability and which called for evaluations. And actually, when we saw some of those evaluations came out, we found out, number one, that a lot of the money that was being allocated wasn't really being focused on the kids who needed it the most. And secondly, even when it was, there was no tangible evidence that they were benefiting from it educationally. But we continue to spend. Uh, the third basic premise was that um, it was socially better if most kids went to public schools rather than private or parochial schools. And the policy enactment of that underlying premise was a policy that prohibited, or we didn't even discuss the possibility of using public funding to pay for the cost of, of tuition for children who attended uh, private or religious schools. And of course, the Supreme Court was implicit, complicit in this assumption also, because the Supreme Court, uh, in its wisdom, adopted a policy of not only uh, removing education from public education, uh, religion from public education, but um, uh, adapted a, a, a doctrine which pretended that secularism was a form of neutrality in the discussion about church-state relations. Um, the fourth premise um, was a little more complicated, and it had to do with values in education. Um, some people in education pretended that there were no values in the curriculum, that the per business of schools was to teach reading and writing, which they weren't doing in many cases, um, and that values was not an issue. Other people uh, looked at the values that were being taught in education um, and, um, and recognized that values is a very important part of education. We teach our children about democracy and the principles and meaning of democracy through our public schools. It was always part of the common school mission. And we had to come to terms with that. But there was also a kind of a uh, assumption that whatever educators did in the area of, of values was good, whether or not it was consistent with the values taught in the homes of every child. And there was, a, again, part of the, the values discussion was the removal of anything that had to do with religion at all, including teaching religion as a basic form of American history uh, and taking it out of the curriculum. Bill Bennett was among those who, who, who reminded us is that you cannot discuss 
the major moral issues of the day without coming to terms in some sense with the, with the, with the major religious traditions that make us who we are. Now, there were lots of people who contributed to the discussion in the public interest and began to challenge some of these premises. I'm not going to go through all their literature because I don't have time, but some of the names will be familiar to you. Milton Friedman, Daniel Point, Patrick Moynihan, David Armour, James Wilson, Matt himself, uh, Bill Bennett, who I've already mentioned, Diane Ravitch, Abby Thirdstrom, John Chubb, and we can go on and on. Uh, interspersed with those who were challenging uh, was also a, a very uh, important conversation among people who may not have agreed with them. I think one of the great contributions of the public interest is that always, while there was, there was a desire to challenge current thinking, there was always somebody around who was going to challenge the challenges and, t and have an intelligent conversation about it. You know, Tom Pettigrew uh, in the area of school uh, desegregation, Charles Hamilton with regard to um, community control, and Bill Galston being Bill Galston uh, and challenging lots of things that we were, we were discussing at the time. Um, while I don't want to focus on uh, the, all the contributors, there's one that I think is very important to, to identify uh, as very significant in ushering along an intelligent discussion of what we should be doing in education, uh, who used the public interest as a forum. Uh, and he's a person who I think was probably the most significant and important empirical research in our education in, 40, in that 40-year period, and probably in the 20th century, and that's James Coleman. Um, in the early uh, uh, mid-60s, James Coleman did a study on uh, educational opportunity. And we had finally come to terms with the fact that uh, there was an inability of public urban school systems to address the instructional and social needs of children who were attending their schools, uh, particularly children who were African American or Hispanic. And Coleman's study at the time was the largest social science uh, experiment in the history of the country. And what he found was not encouraging, so far as education was concerned. What he found is that the, the most significant determinant of educational achievement was family background. Now, this is profound because it not only suggested that how much you spend doesn't matter, what he was really saying in some way was that schools don't matter. That if you, um, that it would be very difficult for schools to make, that in, make the intervention so that uh, demography is not destiny uh, when it comes to the population who attend schools. Um, in 1970, Coleman came out with another report. And uh, what he looked at was um, the issue of white flight. And what he found, after being a supporter of school integration, was that white flight was directly correlated with, uh, with efforts around busing and school integration that instead of 
promoting an integration of the races, what it was actually doing was fostering more racial isolation. Now, this was a very important report, and it created a furor in the academy. Such a furor that there was a movement in the American Sociological Association to censure him for what he had said. Now, there are a lot of... Um, there are a lot of lessons we can draw from that particular episode. One lesson, which I think was something uh, Coleman was very honest about, has to do with the limitations of social research and our ability to be wrong. Another lesson you could draw from it was uh, had to do with the reaction to the report itself and the anger it provoked within the academy. And I guess you can draw two sub-lessons from that. One lesson is that many academicians would prefer to be wrong rather than to admit they're wrong, and there's a lot of evidence to support that notion. Uh, another one is that uh, is, it was kind of a, an illustration of the kinds of um, narrow-mindedness and vindictiveness that was present in the academy and still is for people who have the gall to raise questions that other people don't want to deal with or to even say that what they might, uh, that some of their pet theories might actually be wrong. Or even to say that there is some, some, there is some empirical evidence to suggest that they might be wrong. Um, in the early 1980s, Coleman changed his mind again. The man who had said that schools don't matter or don't matter enough did a study comparing public schools and private schools. And what he found was that um, private schools did a better job of severing the connection between race and educational outcomes than public schools. And when he further studied Catholic schools, he found that the reason that happened was because of the values that was in those schools. Um, he also drew some conclusions from that, some policy conclusions from that research. And he said that if that is the case, then perhaps if we really want to deal with this dilemma of performance in the urban community, we ought to think about things like tax credits and vouchers for, uh, for kids who now attend public schools. This was very important because while Friedman had put the notion of vouchers and markets on the table in 1955 uh, in his essay, uh, it was merely a proposition. Coleman was the first uh, empirical researcher who actually did the work to, um, to see if there was any sense to this, if there was any political or better yet social or educational uh, payoff from a, a policy that allowed us to spend public money for non-public schools. Um, if we... Uh, if we try to, um, again, uh, get a grip on 
the kinds of conversations that were unfolding uh, during this period and look at where we are today. We do have a sense of a certain amount of progress that's been made in our willingness and our ability to deal with this dilemma of American education. Um, there are lots of things we could point to uh, that would uh, suggest that we're making some progress. Uh, in 2002, the federal government, George Bush, signed No Child <coughs> Left Behind. Now, some people would like to look at this and say, well, it was a great victory for the Republicans. A Republican president was finally able to drag the Democrats along and impose some level of accountability in uh, spending because No Child Left Behind was actually a reenactment of the ESEA. But the better story is that No Child Left Behind was not really a Republican initiative solely. The good news about No Child Left Behind was that it was bipartisan. While the debate about accountability can be traced back to Ronald Reagan in a report called Nation at Risk, which came out in 83, um, by the time George Bush became president, President George Bush, um, the table had already been set um, by the Clinton administration uh, in terms of what we might do to, uh, to use the funding that was made available to No Child Left Behind uh, more effectively. By the time No Child Left Behind passed, most of the states had already, in their own way, adopted accountability standards so that No Child Left Behind was in, in some ways a federal uh, acknowledgement of what was already going on in the states in an attempt to move it along a little bit further. Uh, something else very important happened in 2002. The United States Supreme Court, in the Zelma decision, declared that it does not violate the First Amendment or the Establishment Clause to use public funding to pay for tuition for children to attend religious schools. This was profound. Nobody could have ever imagined that this would happen as early, I would say, 1960. I would say as, as, uh, as far as 1990s, in the late 1990s. It was a major uh, decision. The court had been inching along uh, on the First Amendment, but this, this really opened the door for uh, uh, at least in the sense that it, re it eliminated um, a, a federal legal prohibition against a, to children who attended uh, religious schools. We could also turn to uh, the fact that by this time, Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida and Colorado and the District of Columbia had adopted uh, had adopted uh, voucher programs for poor kids. Uh, although, unfortunately, the, the Florida and the Colorado uh, programs were struck down by the state courts. 
We all, it's also, I think, somewhat encouraging that as we speak today, 41 states have charter school laws, which is another way of uh, rethinking the institutional framework for American education. If you were to ask me um, after 40 years what's changed, uh, I think what I would tell you is that what's changed is that there are things we can discuss now in educational circles that we were not able to discuss before. And that's the good news. The bad news is that if you participate in those conversations, particularly in academic settings, what you know is that um, you can still lose a debate uh, by having your opponents simply dismiss you as a, you or your arguments as conservative. And what's unfortunate about that is not whether you win or lose the debate, but what's most unfortunate about it is it's still a way of closing off the debate. And I think I'll stop at that. <laughs> Professor Mansfield. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, especially at Princeton, home of the Tiger, co-champion of the Ivy League this year in football. I was a sometime contributor to the, um, um, to the public interest. Maybe I, may, I wrote maybe four or five articles or reviews. Uh, I, I did write one on the university uh, in 1990, the, which, which was called The State of Harvard. It was a review of uh, a very complacent book by Henry Wysofsky, um, uh, who had written a, a book called The University, An Owner's Manual. And it was unclear who was the... Uh, owner that was being referred to, but some people suspected that it was uh, Henry Wysofsky. Uh, so, so a sometime contributor, but uh, also an, an even more an avid reader. Uh, the, the, I, I had read uh, every article in every issue of the public interest, uh, uh, at least uh, by the following day that it arrived in my uh, mail. Uh, however, to uh, make these remarks, I haven't Reread many of the issues uh, in the public interest, interest on the on the on the universities. There were many of them. I maybe as many as uh, sixty or seventy. So uh, this is uh, a, a kind of reminiscence and um, and, and uh, an uninstructed comment. Now, what was the relation of the public interest uh, to the universities? <clears throat> in the first place, uh, it, it was not. <coughs> an academic or a professional journal. Uh, Nathan Glazer and Daniel Bell were professors, but uh, Irving Kristol was not a professor, uh, though most, uh, not all, but most of the contributors were professors. However, I don't think they used their articles in the public interest for the sake of promoting their professional recognition. I think that would be safe to say. And yet, the public interest was within uh, social science. It didn't claim to be above social science. 
And so it made this famous declaration, which it repeated. I'm now reading from one of the coupons that it used for subscribers or potential subscribers. And it says, it made this quotation from the editor's prospectus to the public interest. The public interest is not some kind of pre-existing platonic idea. Rather, it emerges out of differences of opinion reasonably propounded. Well, uh, and I say that was a, a, a famous declaration. Uh, there was, uh, there was uh, a friend of mine, a student of mine, uh, named Nathan Tarkoff, who said that this made the public interest the only professedly anti-Platonic journal. <laughs> it had a kind of pre-existing hostility to Plato. But actually, I think if you looked at, uh, say, Plato's Republic, you would see perhaps that the idea does, according to Plato, arise out of differences of opinion or perhaps contradictions within opinions. But uh, if, the, if the public interest stayed within the realm of social science, it was not normal social science. And that you see right away from the title of the journal, Public Interest, because most or orthodox social science would say that public interest is a value-laden uh, concept which couldn't be the object of science. Most social science was uh, 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 in favor of or, or, or based on the fact-value distinction that you could have science about facts, but you couldn't have science about values. Now, Nathan Glazer in, uh, in, in 2005 in the last issue of, of, of the public interest, said that over, the, over, the, over time that uh, journal became um, less concerned with or less uh, uh, a part of social science and more concerned with culture. And this, especially with respect to the universities and, and, and within the universities, especially with respect to the authority of university officials against the protest of students in the late 60s. That um, the need for concern with culture arose from the fact that university administrators, the, so the, the representatives of the university, which, were the, which was the um, home of social science, had lost their authority over the students who were there to study many things, including social science. In other words, social science couldn't sustain itself on its own. It couldn't sustain the authority of those who were, um, um, uh, who were administering the university, which sustained social science. Social science objectivity was defined as the fact-value distinction. As I said, there, was, there could be no science of values. But a university based on a fact-value distinction couldn't defend itself from attack by students from the new left. The fact-value distinction needs authority because it needs an organization that uh, has a component of authority. But it cannot establish that authority because it can't say why social science is good or valuable. And therefore, one had to go to culture to see how this change had occurred. 
had occurred and why it was that university administrators were so ineffective in, um, in putting down or, or even uh, talking to the student demonstrators in the late 60s. And uh, um, not, it's, it's, in other words, social science depended on a certain culture which could establish its authority. And this would perhaps lead to philosophy as the source of the culture to provide the foundation for the authority of social science. But philosophy then and now was under the spell of Nietzsche, according to whom there is no foundation for the exercise of reason, let alone social science. And this was explained in a book that came out in 1987 by Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind. <clears throat> now, the public interest was different from Alan Bloom's book. The public interest went in the direction of Bloom, you could say. It sashayed over towards him. <clears throat> and it wasn't, of course, just him, but the figure behind Bloom, his teacher, Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss had said, had spoken of the, the fateful replacement in the early 19th century of the notion of civilization by the notion of culture. The <clears throat> civilization meant that there was a difference between being civilized and uncivilized. Civilization versus barbarism. And there was a definite progress when you went from uncivilization or barbarism to civilization. When this was replaced by culture, the uncivilized peoples, the barbarians, became as cultured or, or got a culture uh, that, uh, to compare with or to be equal with uh, the, the culture of, 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 of civilization. This wasn't fully accepted. Uh, for example, you would hear often today say of the uh, culture of an Indian tribe, Apache culture. But somehow the phrase Apache civilization never comes into um, respectable hearing. But the, the word civilization comes to have uh, the indefinite article before it. A civilization, not just civilization itself or civilization proper. So the public interest went in this, in this direction but stopped short of it. Closing of the American mind was reviewed in the public interest in 1987, the year, year it came out, by guess who? It's a name known to everybody in this room, but will be a surprise. Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> yes. Now, I, was, I told this to Diana Schaub, and she said she, no? Love and friendship. Okay, love and friendship, yes. So it was Andrew Sullivan, and at that time he was a teaching fellow at, in Harvard, uh, actually teaching in one of my courses, and he was still in the closet, which might, and this is a very good review, one of the best things that he's ever done, I would say. So um, one suggestion uh, arising from this is that perhaps the mind benefits from restraint now and again. <laughs> in any case, Andrew Sullivan was not a public interest uh, regular. I don't think he ever wrote uh, anything else uh, 
uh, for this um, uh, for, uh, for the for, for the journal. So uh, the public interest was not philosophical; it was social science with an emphasis on culture, understanding culture as ideas, and ideas perhaps over behavior, though there were many quantitative studies <coughs> in it, uh, which. Uh, and, 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 poked holes in various in, in all the programs of the welfare state and of the great society, deflating them with suppressed glee. One issue after another destroyed one program after another. Uh, each of them, each of the programs was found not to work. And that was devastating, I think. The foundation of the welfare state had been social science. It had been Social science studies telling you how to fight poverty. And this has been nothing new. Social science and political science got their start um, in the beginning of the 20th century under the, um, un under the, uh, under the progressives. There was a kind of alliance between uh, progressivism and social science. The American Political Science Association, for example, was begun under this uh, influence at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, the public interest took a particular interest in universities. As I said, there were many 60, as many as 60 or 70 articles on them. It took no particular interest in theories or political theories of liberalism, except, um, as, um, um, uh, except that it uh, was interested in the fact, and Nathan Glazer, um, I mentioned again, uh, uh, spoke of this, um, that liberalism had become the main target of the new left. This was an especial issue on the universities that came out in uh, 1968. And it was uh, led off by an article of, 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 of Nats uh, remarking on this uh, really new event that uh, the left was now especially opposed to liberalism. The liberalism was now accused of being repressive though they consider themselves to be progressive. Today, I think there are two characteristics of the university which began or accelerated in the late 60s. And the first is the notion that science is, um, is progressing, that there are scientific advances which are um, impressive and uh, almost explosive in their, um, in, in, in their influence. The university is home to or host to an almost infinite expansion of new knowledge, an expansion of new knowledge. For example, Pluto, we've recently found, is no longer a planet. Once it was a planet, now it isn't. So uh, the new knowledge um, replaces old knowledge which had replaced older knowledge and so forth. So, so that um, the, and, and to accommodate this science has to expand the number of professorships in science has to expand and the universities have to expand and so Harvard is moving to the other side of the river uh, in Cambridge to Alston and one big reason for that is the sciences need more room. There's a, a kind of limitless momentum uh, in, 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 in science. No, nobody knows how to stop it. <laughs> but 
we're all sure that it constitutes progress. Progress not toward perfection, because that would mean that science became wisdom and you would no longer need new knowledge, but you would be satisfied with old knowledge. No, it's uh, toward perfection, but never gets there. In, in this uh, wonderful word uh, that, that Tocqueville uses, perfectibility, That's, which I think uh, means just that, a, 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 a perfecting that never can become perfect. More and more perfection, but never, uh, more and more uh, perfect, perfecting, but never perfect. So this new knowledge replaces the old knowledge, which itself was once heralded as new. The prestige of science is still extremely powerful, therefore, in the, um, in the universities. In, in a book I recently wrote on manliness, I, I, I try to begin from the fact, the common sense fact, that the sexes are different. That, uh, yes, they're similar, there are similarities, but also there are differences, and you can see this in common sense uh, every day uh, in your life if you open your eyes. This is not good enough. <clears throat> common sense needs to be supplemented or indeed uh, validated by um, social science. And so I was uh, compelled to use uh, uh, studies in social psychology which prove that, yes, it turns out, indeed, um, men and women are different. And moreover, that the, belief, the beliefs that laymen have about those differences, the content of those differences, is by and large correct. I, in, 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 uh, in, in one of my travels, uh, I went to a North Carolina state and there encountered a shrewd economist who had read this book. And he told me, well, I'm sort of impressed by the whole thing. But, he said, looking at me, you couldn't have pulled it off without those studies in social psychology. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, I think that's, uh, for, you know, from all, for all my crit critiques of science, and I proceeded to criticize the very studies I relied on, um, I was still relying on them. Social science... Uh, therefore, at least, uh, it can supply useful, even necessary, rhetoric in our age. If you want to make a, a statement that has the form of, I believe that, then you can insert any belief that you have. Say, the, the moon is made of green cheese. Uh, no, you have to replace those two words, I believe, with studies show that the moon is made of green cheese. <clears throat> and, uh, and you can get away with that. I found, uh, I found this out on radio and TV. Just say, studies show say, that men and women are different. <laughs> so, so there was something similar going on in the public interest, I think. Social science, well, to destroy the prestige of, uh, of social science. And yet, also to uphold uh, social science in a way against the new left as objective, not complicit, for example, in the Vietnam War, which was what it was accused of being. So it's good to bring back culture or ideas, but not values 
that are merely, merely values just because they are asserted. So that's one characteristic of the universities today. And the other, I think, is a politicization of the university, which says that the university must do what I said shouldn't be done, I just said shouldn't be done, that is, drop objectivity and adopt the values of participatory democracy. That was a phrase used in the late 60s, and that phrase has now been transformed. It's a, it's a bit different to, of course, the word diversity. These values which are adopted, or rather asserted, are, 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 are the values of political correctness. Political correctness is a sarcastic term that uh, arose or, in the 1980s. It comes from Marxism, or rather Leninism, the science of history, um, the science of history as Marx understands it, in practice becomes the science of the policy of the party that represents the proletariat, which is the party of the universal party, the party of mankind, according to Marx. So, uh, as I say, it was, it's used sarcastically now. It was also even used by um, the communists, both uh, literally and sarcastically. It was sometimes used by those uh, on, the, on, the, um, on, on the very left the, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, of the Communist Party to attack those in charge. That what they wanted was those in charge. Wanted was uh, political, politically correct, and one must go beyond that. But in the university today, political correctness is a mixture of morals and belief, but it doesn't have the prestige of science. On the whole, it is critical of science. Most political correctness is against science and against scientific progress. So um, environmentalism, global warming, and so on, ecology, all of those are critical of um, the results of scientific progress, which have brought us wonders of technology like the internal combustion engine. But these views, uh, environmentalist views, are often themselves supported by scientific studies. So in this way, the cure for the defects of science becomes more science. But on the other hand, science can never say that science goes too far or has taken us too far or that science doesn't go far enough. So um, our, our, our original liberalism, say the liberalism of Thomas Jefferson, believed that there was a mutual support between politics and science, that more science would <clears throat> endorse the politics of liberty, and that the politics of liberty would then sustain the advance of science. But today, Politics and science mutually infect and impede one another. And the university is therefore confused. And yet somehow there's a yearning for the public interest that remains. A yearning, I think, better described by Plato than by the American Political Science Association. <laughs> Professor Allen. Greetings and thank you. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to participate. 
I am grateful not only to be asked here this morning, but to be in the Madison program this year. Professor George described to you my experience with Princeton, having paid eight years of tuition. <laughs> and I, I rather looked forward to being able to return and to earn at least a portion of it in return. <laughs> Unhappily, some of the intricacies of university administration on my end <laughs> rendered my <laughs> revenge impossible because Michigan State proved to be too proud to allow Princeton to compensate me. But <laughs> Nevertheless, I remain grateful to be a fellow and to be a part of this program, which has genuinely been uh, vigorous and inspiring. I uh, listened so far to the sessions that we've had, and I've observed a couple of things that I will remark upon. Uh, the first is that most uh, of our presenters have taken the trouble and the time to review the issues of the public interest to good effect. And while I have read a great deal of what was published during those 40 years in thinking about this topic, I'm not going to provide an analysis or summary of what was said. Uh, but I think it is worth noting that there has been certainly a very valuable discussion of preferences and affirmative action, and perhaps no more notably than during the period of mend it but don't end it in which there was a great outpouring of book reviews and articles on the topic in the public interest. But my concern this morning is rather to enact than to appraise the public interest. And so I shall move shortly to a direct presentation on the question under the title Race Preferences at Work of what we actually confront in dealing with the question today. But I want to say before undertaking that, that it seems to me that the inspiration of the founders of the public interest plays a large role in what we think about this question, as perhaps it does in many of the others. I'm reminded from the last session of Irving Kristol's Two Cheers for Capitalism, uh, a very interesting and teasing title, uh, which seemed to convey that Kristol's position was we should be mindful of our abstract commitments, but never take them too seriously. And I suspect we could extend the figure two cheers for capitalism across a range of abstract commitments and policy options about which Crystal would have said something quite similar. Uh, it probably also is reflected in the piece he did in celebration of the Declaration of Independence when he described the revolution of sober expectations. In short, there, there is an approach that I think is captured very well by Paul Johnson when he reviewed Crystal's Looking Back, Looking Ahead, that suggests that it is not so much appropriate to ask what were the policy preferences of the public interest, but rather what were the cautions, what were the prudences of the public interest. Johnson said this about Crystal. Uh, he, he's not a romantic or an Arcadian. He does not suffer from an excessive nostalgia. He has no formal attachments to traditional religious or secular hierarchies. On the contrary, as these pages make clear, he warmly supports the sensible, empirical pursuit of progress and seems to believe that mankind, while far from perfectible, is capable of slow but indefinite improvement. So 
thinking of it in those terms, one might say that, sure, uh, the, the architects perhaps did retain a commitment to the New Deal, for example. But I would suspect that there would have been no more than two cheers for the New Deal. Uh, they may have had some affection for welfare policies in some form, but I would suspect there were never more than two cheers for the great society or for welfare policy. It may be that, as we have seen before the pages of the, or in the pages of the public interest, that there were varying opinions on the questions of multiculturalism and of affirmative action. But probably there was never at any time more than two cheers for affirmative action, if that many. Therefore, part of what has to be considered, it seems to me, is the very question of whether the issues as they were raised in the public interest were presented in such a way as to provide for or to guide in any expected resolutions of those questions in our time. I'm reminded of what uh, Nathan Glazer says in, uh, just a year ago in the piece Neoconservative from the Start as we close out the 40 years when he said managing social problems was harder than we thought. People and society were more complicated than we thought. We could not assuage student disorder by reminding students that they were the most fortunate of generations in the most idyllic of places. He was, of course, talking about the student riots in the 60s, but I would extend that to the broad range of questions that have been considered. So I want to illustrate for you just why problems are tougher than we thought, managing expectations more difficult than we thought, by talking about race preferences at work. Uh, let's coin a phrase, embedded social practice. And in a moment, I'm going to make this work with me. But I seem to have, there we are. Well, there is a show there, which I will have for you presently, once I figure out how to make it do what it's supposed to do. I believe we're there. So let, let's coin a phrase then, embedded social practice. Let's use the phrase to describe the current status of race and gender preferences in the United States. Let's give the phrase a precise meaning. Practices that remain after the trial period of specific legal experiments has expired, giving effect to social wishes by custom or fiat without reference to legal parameters. So that's social scientific enough, I trust. Now, the most dramatic example of embedded social practice in the area of race and gender preferences occurred the day after Michigan voters overwhelmingly adopted a measure legally to ban preferences. When University of Michigan President Mary Sue Coleman mounted a rostrum in the quad to declare the University of Michigan above the law, her version of massive resistance took the form of the rallying cry, we are Michigan, we are diversity. I'm sure she was once a cheerleader. A more useful example, though, can be had in a garden variety case that I will report and which happened only in recent days and, in fact, is still underway. The following scenario is taking place at a highly reputed private East Coast university that receives substantial federal funding. The political science department met to deliberate on candidates for an American politics position. The search committee reported 10 candidates from a large pool, all of whom were qualified, I quote, 
for the position, and at least six of whom were very good fits. Practice called for the department at large to select three of the candidates for on-campus interviews. The department decided to employ its usual method of deciding by vote, using what political scientists call the border method. This entails a secret ballot on which voters rank all candidates from one top choice to ten last choice. And that produces a numerical tally in which the lowest number reveals the highest rank and so on to the end. The top three candidates are then invited to campus. The department favors the scheme over the Australian preference ballot, which calls for an extended repeat balloting. The tally produced the following results. As you see, we have five candidates. The first candidate, most qualified presumably, a white female, degree in hand, from a top 50 school. All the candidates were from top 50 schools. The second candidate was a white male. The third candidate was a white male. Fourth candidate was a white male, apparently Jewish, I observe in passing. The fifth candidate was a black female, degree expected in the intermediate range, meaning it, she was the most remote from completion of her program of those five. At this point, the chair moved to send the results to the approving dean to extend invitations. A faculty member moved, however, that the department request to invite candidate number five plus the three additional candidates by rank. Some faculty favored the motion for affirmative action and diversity reasons and noted that candidate number four would not be invited anyway and so was not being harmed. At least one faculty member objected to using race to move one candidate ahead of a higher right candidate after the fact. This is a real case. It is presently unfolding. We do not know, therefore, what the results will be. The point, however, is to observe several notable dynamics in play here. To take the least obvious first, candidate number five will have no idea of what has happened unless she actually gets the job and exercises the reasonable prudence of catching up with her new colleagues by reading department minutes for the past year, something I always recommend, by the way. And what I have reported comes directly from the departmental minutes. Should she do that, she will then confront the now conceded stigma effect of race and gender preferences. Secondly, these faculty are all political scientists whom we may be sure are fully informed about the legal requirements of what they're doing and who know, therefore, that they have just violated the law on a number of grounds. To take only the most obvious, the 2003 Gruter-Gratz decisions resulted in a two-fold test of racial considerations. When they involve extra points for race, they are illegal. When race is legitimately referenced, it is only in a holistic assessment, to quote Justice O'Connor, which has to mean that it comes in before the fact of summary evaluation. That the files were weighed, assessed, and judged before the race move was made places this case on the Gratz side of the scale. Finally, what has occurred illustrates perfectly what I have called embedded social practice. The society has dallied so long with racial preferences that certain constituencies habitually employ them as if by right, even when they know they act against the law. Unless university and other administrative hierarchies deliberately undertake to clean up this rat's nest of illegitimate motives for decision making, 
we as a society will be processing the fruit of this kind of racism for far longer than the 25 years to which Justice O'Connor sentenced the country in 2003. I present this as an illustration of the kind of discussion the public interest characteristically made possible for us for 40 years. And as a way of saying, that kind of discussion remains no less necessary for us now than it was before. Thank you, Professor Allen. Uh, very good. Let me uh, ask any of the panelists if they'd like to say anything to each other before we open the, uh, open the floor. Anything? Good. Okay, then the uh, floor is open. Uh, yes, sir. It hadn't, uh, Professor Mansfield, it hadn't occurred to me before this morning that uh, it may have been as a result of reading your book that Larry Summers lost his job. <laughs> but uh, so I asked this with a little hesitancy. What, what is your perception today as far as, um, let, me, let me call it the hegemony of the, the left in universities like your own? And, and especially in the issue of the role of the autonomy in the faculty in, in, in causing that. Um, I, I would say um, Larry Summers lost his job because he read not my book, but uh, Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, Pinker is, uh, is a good friend of his, and I, th I think uh, Summers was responsible for getting him to from MIT to, to Harvard. And um, uh, he, he, how did I say? Uh, he, he, he learned uh, science, but not rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that, but still, uh, that's not to excuse his ouster. So, and his ouster was a great triumph for the, for the left. And it does indeed uh, show, show something of, of the hegemony of the left, or better to say, perhaps the, the 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 moral authority, moral and political authority of the left. Hegemony is perhaps not it's not quite that severe. But after this incident, after Summers' ouster, I think uh, th things are notably darker on the university scene in America. Uh, Joe Vitteretti wanted to make a comment. Yeah. I, I can't speak on the, on the merits of, uh, of Larry Summers as a college university president, but I think that the real tragedy of, of that episode was that um, despite what his other issues might have been, uh, the idea of removing somebody for an idea that they have in the university setting totally contradicts what the meaning of a university should be. And, and the tragedy of it is that most academicians inside or outside of Harvard don't understand uh, the severity of that. Yeah, uh, Bill Galston. <clears throat> well, as 
a number of speakers have pointed out in the past couple of days, an important element of the public interest's admirable empiricism was a focus on what works as opposed to good intentions. Uh, and so I'm going to put the following question to Professor Viteridi in the mode of self-criticism. I'm pretty deeply implicated in the historical process that led up to the adoption of No Child Left Behind. You know, I will you know, spare everybody the, chap the chapter and, and verse, and I can assure you that when I testified before Congress on behalf of precursor legislation, uh, I thought it was a good idea because I thought it was going to work. Uh, I am no longer sure that it is working as advertised or can work as advertised. And I wondered, what is your assessment of the basic framework that's been established and whether or not it has any chance whatsoever of achieving its very ambitious objectives? Um, I agree with you that it hasn't worked. Um, I'm not disappointed because I didn't expect it would. Um, uh, I, I think that um, No Child Left Behind is an, is an important move in the right direction in, in the sense that it, uh, it imposed a framework for accountability that did not exist before. And as I said earlier, I think the country was slowly moving towards that anyway. Um, I think it needs to be fixed. I think there are problems with it. Um, I think one of the problems with it is that uh, the great bargain between um, supporters and opponents, one of the great bargains, well, I'll, I'll talk about two bargains. One bargain was that uh, there was a big debate about national standards. And, and the bargain was, well, we'll let the state, we'll, we'll say that we need to have a standard of accountability but instead of the federal government imposing that standard, we'll let the states figure out their own standards. And the states have proven, unsurprisingly, that if they're going to be measured by standards, they want it to look good. So the standards they adopted weren't very strong. And I think that suggests that as we have another look at this, we have to really consider national standards, uh, which can involve national testing and will be a, another major debate. But I, I think that's one point. The other point is what was taken out of the original law. And part of the accountability was the opportunity for students to, who were stuck in failing schools to move and go somewhere else. But it was changed in the process of the legislative negotiations so that it, those students would only be able to move to, to public schools. Well, anybody who's familiar with urban education knows that that's not that's not a guarantee at all because there's nowhere to go. If you're in New York City and there are 1,100 schools and 100 are high performers, telling the people in the 400 schools that they can go somewhere else is really telling them to go somewhere else. <laughs> um, and um, unless you include in that a provision that allows those students to go to non-public schools and spend, you could spend half as much and probably get more for it, I mean, the, the, you know, the, you know the, the obscene development in urban systems over the last few years is that we've been closing down schools that work for lack of funding, Catholic schools, while um, we're, we're forcing uh, children to stay in schools that don't work. 
So if there are two ways to, to help repair it, and that, that's what I would focus on. Professor Allen? Yeah, I want to address this only because it gives me occasion to point out that I think the three presentations this morning actually are, are remarkably coordinated in an important way, that there are uh, problems that persist because of ways of doing things which cannot be so directly addressed by simply addressing the question which Joe just answered, namely, does an existing policy or is an existing policy subject to reform? So the observation I would make is that we often make the mistake, and uh, this is something really critical in talking about the public interest, of thinking that because we can aggregate a thing, we can therefore discover a national standard or a national outcome as a result. Uh, things can be aggregated without therefore being regarded or interpreted or evaluated as having come to be because they exist on a national basis. I think it's really important to take the latter part of Joe's comments, which says uh, let's hold them accountable in terms of allowing the persons directly affected to impose the accountability as a very differing kind of question than the question of whether we need to have national standards or whether we need to hold them politically accountable. And reaching for the political solution itself uh, as the direct administrative solution is often the very source of the difficulty that causes the problem of not quite successful initiatives. And we're going to have to bite the bullet eventually of asking ourselves, is a governmental response at the national level the appropriate response? Now, the one problem that seems to highlight the failure of No Child Left Behind continues to be the achievement gap problem. If we took that off the table, we might not think it worked, but we would describe it very differently. And when we realize that it's the achievement gap problem and that the achievement gap problem ties in to the set of policy prescriptions dealing with the problem of race in America, we ought to understand that we're trying to solve problems without directly naming them. We're trying to solve them by over-aggregating them. And we're trying to solve them without relying upon the people directly affected to affect the solution. Uh, Professor Mead. Uh, this discussion makes me think that at the university, we really have a parallel problem in a sense to the schools, namely a lack of accountability of the academics. We've been said a couple of times that the reason the academic world has trouble dealing with the truth-telling of something like the public interest is that they're not only barred by PC, but they're also barred by their scholasticism, their increasingly specialized uh, methodological forms of research. They really can't speak about reality directly. I've been struck in the uh, social policy debate at the insulation of most of my critics and opponents. They really don't have to deal with what has occurred about welfare or other social policy topics because they live in a world where they're protected, where they essentially can go on doing their kind of research and making their kind of assumptions, and they don't have to come to terms with reality in the outside world. Uh, now, how does that happen? Well, I th it has to do, I think, primarily with a loss of accountability within the university. Uh, successful universities, and this now includes NYU certainly, and others uh, that we're all acquainted with, have essentially been so successful in drawing students and funding that there's no longer much incentive on the part of the hierarchy in the university to keep the faculty under control. So they're allowed to engage in self-governance, which means they hire more people like themselves. They become yet more PC and yet more specialized, and that takes them away from accountability. Uh, the surprising thing is that the presidents and deans, the, the administrators uh, who you would think would care about reality and staying in touch with reality, have just given this up. 
in a number of cases that I've seen, uh, universities lost money, big money, from the federal government because the research was no longer compelling in dealing with poverty. And not a dog barked. Not a dog barked. They were not called on the carpet. Deans never asked them why they lost their money. They went on like nothing had happened. And so this is a surprising thing. There actually are some parallels also to the session about corporate governance here. Comments? It's really uh, uh, Valley has a notion of, of truth, which he calls effectual truth. And the, the effectual truth of a proposition is often uh, the, the direct opposite of uh, what it professes. So, so the effectual truth of diversity is conformity. Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, let me put a question myself to, uh, to the panelists. Uh, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, uh, David Brooks wrote a column uh, about the situation in the universities uh, in the New York Times uh, in which Professor Mansfield uh, and I were both quoted, as was uh, uh, Dean Donald Kagan uh, at, at Yale. Uh, and he quoted us uh, expressing uh, the anxiety we felt in advising know, our very gifted uh, undergraduates who, who might, uh, in, uh, uh, in the course of their own thinking about their careers, consider academic careers, the anxiety we felt in advising them to pursue academic careers if they were conservative, uh, especially on, in the moral and political uh, domain. Uh, I thought that those comments were rather unexceptionable. Uh, I did not expect to get any flack uh, about them. Uh, in my own career, I've had gotten very little flack for being a conservative from my colleagues. It hasn't impeded uh, uh, my career. Uh, but plainly, it has damaged the careers of many other people. I could name them. There's some people uh, in, in this room who've suffered in terms of job losses, salary uh, increases, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. But what was remarkable to me after the Brooks article appeared was several of my colleagues these are not colleagues who I considered themselves to be uh, people who would discriminate against the job candidate uh, or in any other way because uh, the person was a conservative, were deeply offended, deeply offended by my remarks. And one even went so far as to ask, uh, uh, in a fairly public setting, uh, whether I could be trusted to be on a search committee because given the views that I have, wouldn't I be practicing affirmative action in favor of conservatives to try to get a few more uh, conservatives around. And what struck me was I'm quite sure that these particular colleagues could have passed a lie detector test, could have passed a lie detector test as to the sincerity of their uh, belief that my complaint or my concern that students might be victims of discrimination in the academic world for being conservatives was out of the question. There was no real such danger that any good student would have an equally good chance, irrespective of political and moral beliefs of succeeding in the academy. And that was an instructive moment for me because I hadn't realized before that just how sincerely many, many people in the academy believe that there is, in fact, not discrimination against conservatives and, and the, the hugely disproportionate uh, ratio of, 
of uh, people on the left to people on the right in the academy is accountable for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with discrimination. What, what do you make of that? These are the same people who will tell you that there is no real uh, practice of racial preferences in which a less qualified person is selected over a better qualified person. And the illustration I, I just gave you shows, in fact, that they do so. That's what I mean by embedded social practice. And Harvey says perhaps he wants to back off of the term hegemony in describing the PC structure of the university, but I don't know that I would urge him to back off of that term. If you understand that by hegemony we don't mean an institutional apparatus per se, but we mean that the people who occupy these offices pervasively work with a certain mindset, call it an entitlement mindset if you will, that certain things ought to be done because it's a civilized way to do things, and they do them because it's right and just, and they can't see any question or problem in what they're doing, then you get the result you describe. They will say, we don't discriminate, we only do what is right. Uh, I, th I think there's uh, an inherent difficulty in liberalism with, uh, uh, as to how to treat conservatives. Um, because liberalism has to believe in progress, and progress means progress in enlightenment away from superstition and prejudice. And, and uh, so then, how do you treat those people who, uh, to liberals, uh, appear to be uh, prejudiced and, and superstitious? Uh, you can either adopt the, the, the position of John Stuart Mill, which is that uh, liberalism needs uh, its uh, opponents almost as much as its uh, proponents, and that there should always be a party of order to go with the party of progress. And that's because even truth becomes dead dogma if it's not uh, um, open to uh, objection and to, uh, and to opposition. Uh, but, but then what, what do you do? Um, but then what, what if that opposition just seems to be prejudiced? Uh, what, what would you do with uh, opponents of, uh, of, of civil rights for blacks? Which now I think most everyone, including conservatives, would, would consider to be um, um, prejudiced. So, so, so there is, I think, within liberalism, always a, a, a one attitude that liberty requires diverse opinions and therefore opposing parties. But on the other hand, progress re requires um, the uh, elimination of, of prejudice and, um, and, 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 and superstition uh, in such a way that th those things are th are, and those people who, propose, or who back such things are left behind and, uh, and, and left out. And, and so okay. I, th I think that liberals shift from one, off, uh, from one of those positions to the other, or they have them mixed up in their minds. Liberty seems to be one thing, and progress seems to be another. That, that's really helpful. So when Larry Summers, who's himself a liberal, uh, goes before uh, uh, the, 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 the group and says, I'm going to uh, offer a, not an opinion, but a provocation, 
I'm going to raise an issue, something that I think we need to explore, something we need to discuss. And this is going to be controversial and provocative. But he says something that under the rules now is out of bounds because it, it counts in that category of prejudice rather than the category of an idea. When he does that, he is appealing to the Millian side of liberalism. He's, he's appealing to his audience to practice the philosophy of Mill and to allow their own views to be subjected to a serious challenge, not anticipating that, in fact, the, the party of Mill is the minority party. And uh, he's now up against uh, the party that's going to enforce the view that, look, we can't, th this is just out of bounds. That, that this is prejudice. This is not ideas. It's out of bounds. Uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Tullis. And the question is uh, regarding the universities and sort of the what do you do sort of structurally. And, and my, I guess my observation is to do with how the, uh, the very fundamental sort of structure of the university, you know, practically speaking today, and that is that it seems to me that the board of, the, of trustees of universities in, the, in its relation to the administration is one where really needs to be looked at more closely and, and it's not uh, as far as I can tell. And that is that uh, I, don't, I just don't see how uh, you can really effectively bring a change unless the power, and, and, and the, by power here I mean the head of the university, the president of the university has control over the money and the, the intellectual power, the hiring of faculty. And, you know, so you have two, two centers of power. One is the ability to spend money and control money, really. And the other one is to hire whoever you want to. And unless there is, it seems to me, unless you can really get into and, and look at the balance, that is the, the Board of Trustees, it seems to me, just don't have the capacity, practically speaking, to know what's going on in the university. Uh, they just come to meetings, and the, and the university has all the information. The, the, the president has all the information, and, and so on. So, anyway, the question is this: How how can you possibly speak about making a significant change at a university or the way universities operate in this country, unless you really look fundamentally at, at that relationship between the trustees and the president of the university, and the buy power more effectively? Yeah, uh, Joe Vitteri. I, I think the Board of Trustees are part of the problem because they've bought into the notion that uh, because of the existence of academic freedom, they, they are in no position to impose any standards of behavior or, or how uh, business is done in the university, and so they, they back off. Trustees can be very powerful, particularly trustees, most of whom uh, give, a, give a lot of money to the university and can have a great influence. Um, and it's, it shouldn't be out of bounds for trustees to raise questions about academic freedom and what's discussable and what's not and whether or not there's discrimination against somebody for, for, because they have a particular point of view. Because I've seen it, and I'm sure others have seen it, where, you can, where candidates get disqualified explicitly because of a point of view. And sometimes what's even worse is it's, um, the, the, the culture is so dominant that it's hard for faculty, well-meaning faculty, to discriminate between their own biases and, and their assessment of a good candidate. So I, I think the trustees should be more involved and should exercise some authority when, when such a, something which is so central to the meaning of a university is at stake. Yeah, uh, Professor Staloff? 
Can you get the mic? First, I just want to thank you for a wonderful panel. <clears throat> I was thinking of one other common theme running through all of your presentations, which is a sort of crisis of values, in this case, of high cultural values. Um, and one of the things that uh, I'd like to just sort of throw out there and get your reaction is um, whether, in fact, the crisis is one con uh, confront uh, or caused by um, liberalism so much as a sort of romantic radicalism. I think specifically of the sort of liberal million uh, enlightened values of toleration, civility, and pluralism, which have been transformed uh, into the sort of championing of, you know, uh, clenched jaw dogmatism. Um, civility has been replaced with authenticity. Right, the stridency of one's views and one's sincerity is a token of one's uh, persuasiveness rather than one's rationality. And Bill, what you've raised is that you know what, what was once the value of, of, of pluralism has now degenerated into a eugenic cult of diversity. Um, in a sense, the, the crisis was not so much of um, a, a fact-value distinction in, in, in social science, so much as a sort of transvaluation and, and Gnostic distortion of values, debasing of values. Uh, I, I, now is not the late 60s. And, and so today, you don't so, hear so much strident radicalism. But what you see is uh, something that looks different, but that has a lot of the radicalism in it, which is a kind of postmodern, shoulder-shrugging blandness. Well, well uh, Harvey, what, what about the factor, though, of identity politics? That, that seems to me a very salient part of the picture on, on campuses today. And where discussion is shut down, often it is identity politics that's at the heart of shutting it down. That's my, my own observation. Does that make sense? Uh, well, sure. Uh, in the Summers case. Well, no, I mean, I mean for going far beyond. I, I mean, I think in most cases where... Uh, an atrocity against academic freedom is committed, it's identity politics behind the atrocity. Well, well that's so, but, uh, but it isn't perhaps as dramatic as an atrocity. Uh -huh. So, so it, like, say, uh, an occupation of, the, of University Hall, the main administrative building by students, uh -huh. demanding uh, <clears throat> um, changes, uh, ult and issuing ultimata and things like that. So, no, but it comes from within. It comes from within the faculty and it comes from the from the, uh, the administration and from the trustees, and in most cases uh, from the president. You know, let me uh, other comment. Yeah, Bill. Add that I agree that there's a reinforcing set of relationships in the university that produce this effect. But but I want to offer a slightly contrarian view of the response to this because uh, I'm often struck by the fact that when we discuss this problem, we assume the classically liberal posture in which we treat the university as a forum that ought to entertain the range of million diversity and similar possibilities, and that we ought to be able to guarantee that. Now, I don't want to embrace that. I have no problem with autonomy in the university. I have no problem with people making decisions based on point of view. What I call for is transparency. I have no problem with people determining admissions on the grounds that they want, so long as they're transparent about that. In, in short, I, I want to resist 
what seems to be the implication that we should intervene no matter what the status institutionally of a given university is in order to direct it towards a kind of normed uh, uh, performance across this range of issues and rather insist that what we have with our universities are public or private, religious or otherwise, is that we're trying to force them into a Procrustean standard of some sort based on the fact that they're universities and not self-defining. Uh, for example, when it comes to admission of students, I'm not at all certain why it is necessary that they should have the right to pick and choose. If they want to do that, and that's their standard and they announce it transparently, fine. But otherwise, I'm not certain why there's a defense for that. I think there's a whole list of questions about which we all assume the propriety of doing these things that need to be reopened. We believe, for example, you can't have excellence if the university itself isn't hand-picking the students who attend. But I like to point out that it's not at all clear what the university claims to be doing at that point. Uh, anyone can uh, pick the best and claim the credit for the work of the best. The question is, what could you do for anyone? <laughs> That's what I want to know when you're really good at what you're doing. We don't have to accept those assumptions about university performance or university structure. So blowing it wide open is to me more important than trying to impose a single standard. And if there's somebody somewhere who has an ideological litmus for participation in that university, that's fine with me, as long as it's transparent. What yeah, is, uh, uh, Sharif, you were, let me just... Uh, yeah, yeah, Harvey, please. Uh, I thought of something I should have said uh, earlier in my remarks and also now. And, and, and I didn't use one word that needs to be used, and that's feminism. I, th I think that's had a tremendous influence on the, um, on the universities in uh, the last uh, decades. Uh, feminism has made its way without open conflict or even argument, but by using, and here's another, the phrase they use is raising consciousness. Yes. By changing our language, by, for example, uh, introducing uh, he, he and she instead of he as the impersonal pronoun. So, and things like that, which are intended to be uh, 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 facers and and and, and, uh, um, uh, and not not arguments, but uh, but um, um, uh, proposals or or uh, changes of of language, which you cannot challenge. Yes. You ca you cannot challenge the fact that a woman can be a doctor as well as a man, and therefore you shouldn't think that doctor. Should you know, the pronoun for doctor should be he? That's uh, that, that, that's patently wrong. So, so that, that kind of uh, of of method of of, um, of, of promulgation and of uh, promotion, uh, I, I think, has been extremely yeah. important. Yeah. and it, it accounts for uh, the conformity that is. Uh, has, has arisen w without m much uh, conflict of opinion. Uh, I, I should add a point of my own. I, I think that uh, there is a danger less among conservative scholars than among conservative uh, students and student groups to fall into the trap of playing uh, identity politics uh, mm -hmm. and trying to use, to, 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 to use that to insulate yes. the conservative point of view from uh, from uh, from criticism, it's an entirely understandable temptation, but I think it is to be completely 
uh, resisted. The, the, the goal of such students should be to have a vibrant debate in which they can uh, advocate their point of view and engage competing points of view, not to immunize their own point of view from criticism and create a situation where no one in a room can say anything uh, because it's anything that anybody says that's of any substance will be regarded as an attack uh, on uh, uh, the personhood of, uh, of people on the other side of the debate, whether they're feminists, conservatives, or, uh, or, or what have you. Sharif, did you have a question yourself? You, you've got the microphone. Just, just oh, an yeah, observation. Bill. I think it goes without saying that orthodoxy is always the preferred rhetorical strategy. <laughs> yeah, Sharif, I did. Uh, this goes back to your question and your concern earlier with your colleagues. I guess, um, at least as I understand the talking points on the debate of affirmative action, some of the, um, the if the primary defense of it is that it rectifies like systematic injustice from the past. I think at least a secondary defense is that all other things being equal, a, an ethnically and racially diverse campus just is better as an educational environment. Um, and so it's the, prerog the prerogative of the university to promote it that way. So I'm wondering um, what your colleagues would have been concerned about if they thought that you were um, doing a sort of ideological affirmative action because to the extent that the racial or ethnic diversity promotes um, a better educational environment. It seems that ideological diversity would do it tenfold. Um, it would be much stronger. Uh, well, uh, it, it, it's, it's a fair point, uh, and I don't, I don't know what they would have said. I mean, the whole thing seemed preposterous to me, but the sincerity of it was evident. As I, as I say, you know, the people involved in this little episode could have, uh, could have passed a, a lie detector test. Uh, I, the, the answer one does here, not in this particular context, but one does here is that, well, look, university faculty are just very good at representing the range of viewpoints, including viewpoints that you don't hold. So you don't need conservatives around to ensure that there's a fair articulation in defense of the conservative viewpoint in class. Uh, uh, you can count on professors who happen not to be conservatives, liberals, radicals, whatever, uh, uh, to, to do that uh, in their classrooms and uh, the students will hear the arguments and be able to judge for themselves where the, where the best side is. I mean, that's what you hear. I mean, I, it seems to me just utterly implausible, but it is what one hears. Yeah, Bill? I don't think it's implausible. I think it is, in fact, correct. It is correct with regard to ideological diversity. It's correct with regard to race. I think the thing you have to avoid is crediting the assumption that there's an educational transaction that takes place from proximity. That assumption is simply false. And we have used it as the underlying assumption to purchase too many arguments that lead us into blind alley. So we end up not questioning the fundamental assumption about what takes place when you mix people up, but rather we extend that assumption and saying, okay, well, let's mix them up in yet another way. The fundamental assumption is the problem. Faculty can represent arguments from differing perspectives effectively, and they do so day by day. It's not necessary for black students to learn that they be taught by black people. It is not true that putting blacks and white in a room together changes the educational transaction per se. That needs to be challenged, and we shouldn't extend it by then bringing in the question of ideological diversity as if to support it. Well, what have studies well, shown? Professor, uh, <laughs> Professor Cornell West and I are going to teach a, se uh, a, a, a seminar together next uh, this coming spring. I, I think that Cornell has taught with Harvey before, so Harvey's had this experience. Uh, I, in my own courses, and my, my students will uh, attest, I'm sure, 
do my best to, to represent uh, views on the left, including views like uh, Professor West's. But I, and, I, and I suspect that in Cornell's case, in particular, he, he makes an effort to represent views like mine in his courses. Uh, but uh, I also suspect, and I think the reason that Cornell and I want to do this thing together in part, is that I suspect he'll do a better job of representing his point of view than I would ordinarily do, and that I'll do a better job of representing my point of view, and that students will benefit from hearing the points of view advocated by people who actually believe them. You're just more modest than I am. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. <laughs> I, I'm less persuaded that, um, that academicians either are able to or want to uh, represent the diversity of opinions that should be represented in the university. And, and I think there's a difference between having an affirmative action program for conservative professors and having a policy that, that, that um, does not allow discrimination against people because of their point of view. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I think that I, that's a serious issue that needs to be taken up in the university. Oh, oh I, I agree, Joe. I, I'm not advocating uh, affirmative action for conservatives in the academy. I just want non-discrimination. And I also agree with the point you made earlier, I think, if I understood you correctly. Uh, if not, you should have made it because it's true, which is that the fundamental problem with discrimination against conservatives in the academic world, I think, is not uh, explicit, uh, self-conscious discrimination. Uh, there, there is some of that. I can cite instances of it. We all could. Uh, but I think more frequently, much more frequently, it's just the problem with human nature. It's very difficult to fairly assess work or fairly to assess work that you fundamentally disagree with, which reaches conclusions that you think are just wrong and even pernicious. It's hard to step back from it and be prepared, especially when a, when a job is on the line or a promotion or something like that, be prepared to say, you know, I think this is wrong and probably pernicious if it were enacted into public policy. But, you know, the author of this argument did make a powerful argument, and it made me think about it. And I'm not even quite sure I can defeat that argument or see how the argument could be defeated. And uh, therefore, uh, I think this person merits uh, uh, you know, a place in the graduate program, uh, an assistant professorship, tenure, promotion, what have you. I, I think we'd be in the same soup if the, soup, if, the, if the shoe were on the other foot and you had the domination uh, of, uh, of uh, institution, academic institutions by people on the right who would then be in a position of trying fairly to evaluate work by people on the left reaching conclusions that they thought were, were not only wrong but pernicious. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 Professor Gregory. I guess this is a question for historical information or just also a comment that might be uh, interested in any, how you receive it. My experience uh, as a younger academic is that many of my conservative friends from graduate school perceived the hegemony and therefore chose not to even pursue an academic career. And I mean, I guess you could call this self-selection. And many of them, particularly when you, the choice is slugging it out as a junior faculty member in the scholastic world that Professor Mead described, or going to Washington and leading <laughs> Uh, whether it's in the administration or in a conservative think tank, that was a much more attractive option. So that many of them just decided not even to go into the job market. Was this the case in the 70s and 80s? 
And uh, if not, what does this mean for the kind of future of conservatism if the, they choose not to become academics but instead work at think tanks, write for journals like the public interest, et cetera, et cetera? It's a great question. Um, Partly because they've internalized the identity politics that you were, I think, worried about that students sometimes have. So maybe these are graduate students also sometimes adopt that position. Does anybody have any sense of the history of the thing? I mean, how new is this problem? Was it a problem in the early 1960s when you know, the, the debates were different debates than what we have today, but did, were, were conservative undergraduates likely to avoid academic careers because they thought conservatives wouldn't fare very well because they would be subject to ideological pre prejudice? Larry, Larry. Oh, uh, Al Felsenberg. Al, can you get, get the microphone? Just some comments. I mean, I, I took my doctorate here in 1978, and, uh, um, you know, this was the long conservative march. I mean, Heritage Foundation started around then. They had no problem getting young, young academics, young scholars, young graduate students, some of whom I knew here. Uh, others went into the government. Some went into the CIA at a time when the CIA was not allowed to recruit here. Uh, then, of course, Mr. Reagan came in in 1980. And, you know, many people I didn't know were conservative suddenly, quote, came out, joined that administration, uh, called themselves neocons, called themselves uh, third generation, called themselves lots of other things. Uh, and there were some people at Princeton that didn't even uh, express their political opinion at the time and wound up working uh, for Mr. Reagan's uh, White House. A uh, point I want to make about university governance and, and, and things. Uh, around that time, Marty Anderson wrote a book about uh, university governance, and he listed in the back uh, who these trustees are. And he uh, saw the entire Reagan cabinet when all this was going on. Uh, uh, Mr. Weinberger was chairing the, the board at uh, Harvard. Mr. Forbes was here and uh, still is on the board. I think he's no, no not on the board anymore. But you can list the entire Reagan cabinet. How come... Uh, the tenured radicals seem to dominate departments. Now, every year or so, we get in a, a form to vote for trustees. Of course, you don't know who you're voting for. It's like the, some stock comp uh, company they own stock in. All the resumes look identical. Uh, the same kind of people turn up on the trustees all the time, and I can tell you they don't know. They think the one thing they can't talk about is content. Uh, it's like in my old life, the National Endowment for the Arts, which we can talk about. Uh, all the panelists feel the same way, you know, what is art? And if you're going to have a category where Mr. Maplethorpe or his successor has competed, uh, and that's the jury, of course you're going to get the same result all the time. So, I mean, the answer is yes, the 70s people did choose to leave voluntarily. They, they kept their politics quiet. They, they wrote about Byron and other things. And, and, uh, uh, and that's around the time the right-wing conservative think tanks began to flourish at the state level as well as in Washington. And uh, they, they did absorb them. But I, I think Eric, I, it was helpful, Al. I, I, if I understood Eric's question correctly, though, I, I think you'd, you'd break it perhaps 68, 69, 70. In other words, prior to the rise of the new left, was the situation the same? Well, then you're really going back to the um, earlier, going back to the 60s, which, uh, which predate me. But I, you know, I do remember... Uh, uh, the Columbia riots and David, Tru David Truman's office being uh, ransacked and one of his books being yeah. thrown out the window and in the name of academic freedom. And none of these people were expelled. Some of them are running the place now. 
Uh, but I think if you're going back an earlier generation, why did those Humphrey, Stevenson liberals who believed that sort of we were nice to have around, you know, if there were one or two, uh, yield to a, a, a new generation of scholars that don't think it's so nice to have us around? I, I, don't, know, I don't know when that flipped, but um, it did flip. There's no question about it. Bill? Just a reference. Uh, Alan Bloom wrote an essay, I believe it was 1974, in Daedalus, in which he describes this process, and I recommend it to anyone's attention. Harvey? Well, when I, when I was a boy, I, I used to uh, go to ball games uh, played by the Washington Senators. And, and they were, uh, those games were usually in the afternoon. And then if, if, if you wanted to go to a, a night ball game, in the same ballpark, you could see the Negro League. So the Negro League um, was to white major league baseball as conservative think tanks are to today's universities. <laughs> Except that the think tanks have had a major, I mean, I, I, my impression is that the think tanks have really had a major policy impact and, and to a significant extent the impact of the universities in the policy world has been, has been muted. I mean, even during the Clinton years, the, uh, I don't think that universities had a huge, other than, you know, having a guy like Bill actually in the Clinton administration who comes out of uh, universities. But, Bill, maybe you could yourself say a word about that. Bill? I think it's fair to say fair number of people in the administration who came out of public policy schools and who had a substantial influence on the shaping of particular pieces. Like Kennedy School, Wilson's... Uh, Very Wilson, much Wilson so. Like Dave, David Elwood, for yeah. example, yeah. was extremely influential you know, based on academic writing that he'd done before he entered the administration in the welfare reform debate. I could, I could offer a number of other examples. Uh, so it, you know, so the, the suggestion that somehow uh, academics who were politically sympathetic with the tendency of the Clinton administration had no influence in the shaping of specific policies, I think, is contrary to fact. Now, whether it had the same kind of density and intensity that you saw during the Kennedy-Johnson years is a different question altogether. Okay. Uh, and, you know, since I was... I was a boy and then in college during those years. Uh, I, I'm not competent to pronounce on that, but Harvey certainly is. Well, well let's go in between, though, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you say that the, the people, scholars out of the policy schools at the universities were you know, roughly as numerous and having the kind of impact uh, on the Clinton administrations that conservative scholars out of the think tanks had on uh, uh, Reagan, uh, the Reagan administrations and the, the first Bush administration. In other words, were those the parallels? In other words, were, were during the conservative years, were the think tank scholars doing what in, in, in democratic years the, uh, the uh, university professors did? Um, I would, uh, let me, I'm, I'm going to, commit a reckless act now of thinking out loud because I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that I know the answer to your question. But I, 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 do, kn I do know this, uh, that there were a lot of people in heritage, for example, in the late 70s or early 80s, who uh, 
contributed very, very significantly to the Heritage Foundation policy telephone book mandate. I think it was called Mandate for Leadership. I remember. Yeah. And that was you know, and and that was a very that that was a serious effort, really comprehensive. Uh, I would say that you know, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit on the conservative side because you had people who'd been thinking conservative policy thoughts for years and years and years who had never received a serious hearing until that moment. Uh, and so there's a lot of pent-up energy, uh, a, lot of, a lot of ideas that uh, liberals and moderates would have done well to take more seriously than they did before they surfaced in the way they did in the late 70s, late 70s and early, early 80s. Uh, my impression is that as time went on during the 80s, the influence of think tankers became somewhat less policy focused and somewhat more ideological, you know, sort of movement conservatives. By contrast, I think the people from the public policy schools uh, who entered the Clinton administration were more like people who wrote for the public interest. <laughs> that is, that they were, you know, that. You know that that they had they were experts in particular areas of public policy. They didn't necessarily think of themselves as part of a political movement, whether it was mainstream or or dissenting. That contributed, I would say, to some of the some of the uh, incoherence of the Clinton administration, which had its million good points, but also some created some problems for governance. That's off the top of my head. That's the most empirical answer I can give you. Helpful. Uh, yeah, final comments from the panel. Joe? Um, I, I would just add, I, I, I think that the, the, the conservative think tanks have had a significant impact on the policy debate, but I, I think you also have to remember that their absence from the act academy has had a, a very damaging effect on the education of young people um, because it's, it's created a kind of laziness uh, and a lack of rigor in academic, in discussions in the academy where it's so easy to dismiss positions without really falling through the argument. It's, it's a lazy kind of debate that goes on. And students are not forced to really examine a position critically. I mean, it, it, to go back to your point, it's illiberal, really. I mean, the, the problem with it is it, it, is it lacks uh, a liberal discipline of the discussion. And, um, and that's significant when you're educating generations of young people. Any final comments from Bill or Harvey? If not, let me uh, ask you to join me in thanking my friends. We will uh, return uh, for our panel featuring Kay Heimowitz, Diana Schaub, and Bill McClay at uh, 2.15 here. <laughs>